Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the effects of Trump's trade war with China on the global economy, the impending recession many believe is approaching, and what progressive policies we need to be ready to implement when it inevitably hits. But before we get started, I just wanted to remind you that we are massively supported by members and donors to the show. And if you want to support the work we do, just two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, while full membership gets you that plus members-only bonus content with extra clips and commentary. We're in particular need of new members right now. We have Trump fatigue syndrome hitting us on one side with members and former listeners sort of fading away over time. And of course, we have uh, the new threat of the impending recession, which means that we are very likely to take a hit in advertising dollars when the bottom drops out. It is going to be the support of members giving just a few bucks a month that's going to carry us through any rough times ahead. So if you get value out of this show and you can afford a few dollars to support it, sign up at patreon.com slash best of the left, or you can visit the contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. And now onto the show. Clips today come from The Young Turks, The Takeaway, Thinking Cap, Sojourner Truth Radio, 538, Frontline, and Pitchfork Economics. Elizabeth Warren is finally sounding alarms on what the reality is of our economic situation. And I say finally because we keep hearing the media regurgitate talking points about how the economy is doing so well. Oh my God, would you look at the GDP? Would you look at how the stock market's doing? But if you just do a little bit deeper dive, you'll find that the economy is not doing well. And so in a Medium post, Elizabeth Warren outlined all of the various issues that our economy is facing today. She says, quote, I see a manufacturing sector in recession. I see a precarious economy that is built on debt, Let me just read that part again. I see a precarious economy that is built on debt, both household debt and corporate debt, and that is vulnerable to shocks. And I see a number of serious shocks on the horizon that could cause our economy's shaky foundation to crumble. Finally, someone's talking about the debt, finally. And I'm not talking about the national debt. I'm talking about consumer debt and also corporate debt. This is a huge issue that no one's been paying attention to and it's been driving me nuts and I'm glad she's drawing attention to it. She says the student debt load has more than doubled since the financial crisis. American credit card debt matches its 2008 peak. Auto loan debt is the highest it has ever been since we started tracking it nearly 20 years ago. And a record 7 million Americans are behind on their auto loans, many of which have similar abusive characteristics as pre-crash subprime mortgages. 71 million American adults, more than 30% of the adults in the country already have debts in collection. Yeah. Okay, there's more, but yeah. come on. So look, look, this is pitch perfect. So for two different reasons, just this weekend, I had multiple conversations with progressive leaders. And we all coincidentally were saying, look, somebody's gotta start saying the economy's gonna crash, cuz it's gonna crash. And so if we don't get out in front of it, what Trump is gonna do immediately is blame Democrats. Now, for what, he's in charge, right? It doesn't matter, he's gonna make it up. He's gonna say, "Oh." Warren was leading in the polling, or Sanders was, or Biden was, or something. So they, the markets thought they might, blah, 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 blah. They thought he might win, and that's why, not me, it's not me, it's not me, right? No, that is why it's so important for Elizabeth Warren and others to come out and say, 
This economy is built to bust, okay? Mm-hmm. It has been inflated and inflated. The tax cuts further inflated it. All they did was take the stock buybacks. It's so the markets are artificially inflated. And the number one driver of that is the debt. So that's the second part that Anna's referring to. Also, pitch perfect, exactly right. Nomi Prince on this show, wonderful financial scholar, talking about how. The debts that the companies are holding mm-hmm. is a time bomb. And and Elizabeth Warren talks about 25% of those companies have way too much debt that's set to explode. Yes, can I give you uh, the excerpt from her piece that talks yes. about that a little bit? She writes, leveraged corporate lending, lending to companies that are already seriously in debt has jumped by 40% since Trump took office, spreading systemic risk throughout our financial system. These high risk loans now make up a quarter of all American business loans. And they look a lot like the pre 2008 subprime mortgages, poorly underwritten loans with minimal protections that are then packaged and sold to investors. So understand what's happening there. Once that is set to explode, all of these individuals, average Americans who are enjoying the success of the stock market today, who have invested their retirement accounts in the stock market, they're, they're gonna feel the pain once this explodes. Yeah, so look guys, this is her wheelhouse. She is great at this. And she is right to have her hair on fire here because when the markets crash and the economy crashes, millions of people lose their jobs. And so she's right politically because I don't want anyone getting it confused later and they will try their hardest to confuse us as to whose fault this was. So that is why it's important to say it ahead of time and show the reasons why it's gonna happen. Elizabeth Warren's done this before. She wrote a book back in 2003 explaining how the subprime loans were going to be a problem and those mortgages were gonna collapse and the housing industry was gonna collapse. She nailed that five years ahead of time. No one's better at this than Elizabeth Warren is. And she's right about the scale of the disaster that would come if these things blow up. And if you don't change anything, they will. The only thing that I'll add to it, and this is, she didn't need to address it necessarily in this piece. I think she got this exactly right. But they all have to move on to the next part. How do you solve it? I know she had descriptions in her proposal for how to solve it, and they're all wonderful. But the real problem is the corruption. And and Elizabeth Warren was the only person to mention it during the debates, so I love that. But you gotta dig deeper, it's not just Republicans. A lot of Democratic senators aid and abet this. Yes. And if you don't have the courage to call out your colleagues on this, this thing's gonna blow. Yeah, that's a great point because she did list solutions like increasing minimum wage to $15 an hour, forgiving student loan debt, things that we've heard from her before. But you're right, I mean, this is what we're seeing right now is a symptom of a much larger issue and it is the government corruption. So she definitely should call that out and propose more to actually you know, stop it, mitigate it, you get the picture. But one other thing I have to add that she didn't mention in this piece, and it was a lengthy piece, I'm not trying to be like overly critical, but non-bank lenders now give out more mortgages, more than 50% of mortgages than the big banks. And the reason why I mention that is because Dodd-Frank doesn't regulate the non-bank lenders. And so they're like doling out mortgages to people who, just went bankrupt, okay? Like the the whole subprime mortgage crisis 
is in the works again. And it's so frustrating that no one's paying attention to it. So that's yeah. another thing to pay attention to. So last two things, I don't want anybody to get it uh, wrong. I'm not saying Elizabeth Warren is not doing a good job of calling out corruption. She's actually probably the best in the field right now. But they all need to do it a lot more than they are now. Because if we're gonna pass anything, you're gonna need all the Democrats to vote yes. Whether it's fixing healthcare or it's fixing Wall Street. And unfortunately, a lot of the Democrats are gonna vote no, because they get that same corporate donation. If you're worried about being polite to them, we're never gonna fix any of this stuff. That goes to the whole field. Now, lastly, on this issue, I thought her piece in Medium was, again, nearly perfect. And But I want you to understand, she's not doing this just because she's a progressive. It's actually the correct financial analysis. I've heard this from other people that I know that work on Wall Street and Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen, also said, and she has been warning for several months now. She said, quote, there has been a huge deterioration in standards. Covenants have been loosened and leveraged lending. If you don't know the details of it, guys, I spent years covering this in the last collapse. Leveraged lending is everything. That is when they gamble on the already bad loans, but they gamble at a much higher level. So when it collapses, the collapse is much larger. So whatever it is, subprime lending in the case of housing or in this now, the most likely point of the collapse will be the corporate debt. But that's the trigger. The gun is leveraged lending. Yes. And the former head of the Federal Reserve is saying, she said, quote, I am worried about the systemic risks associated with these loans. So Elizabeth Warren is not telling you, hey, I'd like a, a progressive society that does this and this. She's saying something that everyone should agree to. Like, we have got to stop this train before it crashes. And, and anyone with any sense recognizes that. Unfortunately, almost no one else in government has any sense. that time and time again that President Trump's best argument for re-election is the strength of the economy. Here's Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney speaking at a conference back in April. You hate to sound like a cliche, but are you better off than you were four years ago? It's pretty simple, right? It's the economy, Stu, but it's, I think that's easy. Um, people will vote for somebody they don't like if they think it's good for them, and we think that, generally speaking, the economy has been good for everybody. In more recent weeks, though, there's been signs that the economy is weakening. And the trade war with China continues to ratchet up. Most recently, China hit back at the U.S. announcing new tariffs on $75 billion worth of goods. Now, keeping track of what the president thinks of all this has been like watching a game of ping pong this week. Listen to what President Trump told reporters last Sunday. I don't see a recession. I mean, the world is in a recession right now. And uh, although that's too big. The president was singing the same song as his administration officials who appeared on the Sunday shows. Well, I tell you what, I sure don't see a recession. We had some blockbuster uh, retail sales consumer numbers uh, towards the back end of last week. Really blockbuster numbers. What I'm seeing uh, looking at all the macro tea leaves is a very strong Trump economy. Then on Monday, the tune changed. The Washington Post reported administration officials were eyeing a payroll tax cut to boost the economy. 
And on Tuesday, the president confirmed it. Payroll tax is something that we think about, and a lot of people would like to see that. And that very much affects the working, the workers of, of our country, and we have a lot of workers. Only to backtrack on Wednesday. I'm not looking at a tax cut now. We don't need it. We have a strong economy. With all this back and forth, you and I need a little clarity. That's why Nancy Cook is here. She's White House reporter for Politico. Nancy, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So, Nancy, what do you make of these apparently mixed messages about the economy that the Trump administration is sending? Well, I don't really view it as mixed messages. I just view it as one thing that they're saying publicly and another thing that they're saying privately. So the public... uh, public message is basically that the economy is fine, the economy is great, the job numbers are great, nothing to see here, nothing to worry about. That's what President Trump and a bunch of his top economic advisors have been saying this week. Privately, though, there is a much different mood in the White House. I think people in the administration, including the president, uh, are well aware of emerging data points that shows that there could be a potential economic slowdown in the White House. And they're starting to get freaked out about it. And they're starting to think through what their options are if there was some sort of recession. And I think President Trump is hyper aware of it because so much of his message for heading into the 2020 election is that he is a master of the economy. You know, the economy is booming. You should reelect me. Forget it. You know, if you don't like my Twitter feed or the comments that I make, forget all about all that. Just vote on the economy. And if the economy takes some sort of downturn, well, then that really blows up that message for him. And he is very, very aware of that. So you're telling me that in public, he's trying to keep a strong face, but privately, he's freaking out. Absolutely. And it's not just him. It's his aides. Uh, I reported this week that Mick Mulvaney, the acting chief of staff, told uh, a group of donors at a luncheon on, uh, you know, this past week in Wyoming that, you know, the economy was great. But if there was a recession, it would be moderate and short. And so there is an acknowledgement behind closed doors that this could be something that is coming. We heard about the payroll tax cut idea. Now that seems to be off the table. If some aides and campaign people are actually worried that the economy is slowing, is there a plan or strategy taking shape to counter that slowdown? There's not one single cohesive plan or strategy. I mean, and you could say that for almost any policy in the Trump White House. I think that there are different aides that want different things. Some of them would like to see another tax cut before the election. And that could be something like a payroll tax or that could be an additional cut in the corporate tax rate. That's according to my reporting. Um, you know, that could be indexing capital gains to inflation, which is something that would probably just help wealthy people, the president through cold water on that this week. Um, but there's not really this cohesive plan. And that's part of the problem. And quite frankly, there's not a ton of tools they could use. I think that what businesses would really like to see them do is end this trade uh, standoff with China. A lot of people feel like that is causing a lot of business uncertainty. People don't necessarily want to invest as much money because they're just not sure what's going to happen with China and these tariffs. Um, but that's not something that Trump is willing to do. And that is one of the key tools that he could have to you know, ward off any potential economic slowdown. So you mentioned China. Now, many of the states that are key to President Trump's reelection are the same places that have been hardest hit by the trade war. The president has said in the past that he just had to take on China. So, Nancy, how are folks in those states, the same ones that President Trump narrowly carried in 2016, how are they doing now 
that the burden of the trade war is more heavily weighing on them. Well, I think that it's a real concern of the campaign and the Trump White House heading into 2020. You know, farmers have been hurt by the tariffs. Uh, you know, consumers, those are, those are, uh, increases in the cost of goods that are being passed on to them. And, and then there's just, as I said, a lot of uncertainty about what will actually happen and what is Trump's endgame on this trade war. I don't think anyone really knows. And as I've talked to sources this week, I think Trump is not backing away from this trade war with China at all, but I do think that he's polling, you know, his kitchen cabinet of advisors about, you know, trying to get them to reassure him that this is a good path, because it is a very politically risky one. It's one that hits people in states like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Minnesota. These are places that the Trump White House really wants to win in 26, uh, 20, 2020, excuse me, mm-hmm. and places that they narrowly won um, in 2016, particularly Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. And so, you know, it's so interesting to me that those are the same places that uh, these tariffs could really hit. And it's not getting better anytime soon. At least it doesn't look that way. The tit-for-tat U.S.-China trade war continues with yet another round of tariffs announced by China, this time on $75 billion worth of goods. It was Beijing's response to President Trump's latest tariffs set to kick in in two waves, on September 1st and then another wave on December 15th. So, Nancy, what does this continued escalation tell us? Well, I think that what it shows is that China is really not going to back away from this trade war and they are, you know, in it for the long term and they feel comfortable, uh, you know, continuing on this path and continuing to escalate it. You know, you have to remember that China's the government basically runs the economy there. And so as long as the government is willing to keep the trade war going and pump money into the Chinese economy as it sees fit and as it needs it, um, you know, this could last for a while. And it's just interesting to me that, you know, it doesn't seem like either side is backing down. The U.S. is not backing down. These tariffs are set to take place in September. The Chinese are not backing down. And this is one of the key things that so many people in the U.S., be it economic experts, business leaders, would like to see a resolution to. And it just doesn't seem like that's coming anytime soon. So Trump, the G7, a lot is happening this weekend. He's likely to be asked about this, no? Oh, absolutely. I think trade will be a huge part of the discussion with the world leaders. They're meeting uh, in France this weekend. And one thing that is also so interesting to me is that I talked to a bunch of senior administration officials yesterday, and the White House is really planning to go into this G7 sort of guns blazing, and they're going to tell all these other countries that they should follow the U.S. and cut taxes and, uh, you know, rollback regulations. And that's not really a message that all global leaders necessarily want to hear. And critics of the president's would are president would argue, you know, that's not necessarily been the best economic policy for the U.S. It's led to uh, much higher deficits. We saw the Congressional Budget Office this week project very high debt and deficits over the next decade, even higher than we previously thought. Um, and so I think that it's not, uh, you know, Critics wouldn't say that this is the best economic policy for everyone, but that's really what Trump is going to say at the G7. He's going to get in a bunch of leaders' faces and say, you know, you should adopt our MAGA policies. These are the best ways. And I think that's part of why he has had such an adversarial relationship at these past type of global economic summits with world leaders.
Today's episode is sponsored by Babbel, the language learning app that will get you speaking a new language quickly and with confidence. Babbel's teaching methods have been proven to be effective across multiple studies. They're designed by over 100 language experts to get you speaking your new language within weeks, and you learn through interactive dialogues so you can perfect your pronunciation and accent with the help of Babbel's speech recognition technology. Plus, the lessons only last 10 to 15 minutes, so they can be both engaging and Convenient. And since it's 2019, Babbel is available as an app or online, and your progress will be synced across devices. I've been using Babbel for my language lessons because I recognized a long time ago exactly what Babbel is claiming, that their lessons are designed to get you started quickly, engaging in dialogue scenarios that you will actually use in real-life interactions. So if you're ready to start speaking a new language, go to babbel.com or download the app, select the language of your choice, and try it completely free. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com. Babbel, speak a new language with confidence. what the status or the state of the economy is right now. Because obviously we hear things not only coming from the administration, but in popular media about, you know, this economy is just chugging along and job, you know, job growth is, is at, you know, or unemployment is at, you know, uh, all time lows, et cetera, et cetera. What's the, what's the real, what's the actual state of the economy right now? It's almost like apples to orange comparisons to use the same indicators of economic well-being today that we've used in the past because the economy today is fundamentally different than when it was in the past. A great deal of the risk are now on individuals and family with regards to social insurance, with, with regards to things like a pension, with regards to a stable job, with regards to health care. Um, so to use the same indicators that we used in the past when what it means to have a job is a lot more insecure than what it was in the past is, is problematic. So if we had some measure of secure job or a job with decent wages, a job with decent benefits, um, perhaps then we could start uh, beating our chest at how well the economy is doing. Um, but right now we are doing a sleight of hand with certain measures that's not really indicative of um, the inequality and despair that many Americans are feeling. So is this a recent phenomenon? I mean, how recent of a phenomenon is, is what we're talking about here? Economic Policy Institute should be credited with producing a report that I think sums up the American trajectory um, it very vividly. In that report, they look at basically a one-to-one -one ratio of productivity gains with wage gains up to 1973. And then at that point, productivity gains continued to rise, but there was a divergent. Wages, real wages, remained flat and didn't rise. And that could be a key juncture in our society by which we began this um, so-called free market revolution where... Um, we basically created a, a portfolio of policies that facilitated accumulation at the top, things like lowering taxes, things like deregulation, things like assaults on unions and the ability to collectively bargain. Uh, there's a report I did with uh, Roosevelt Institute, Julie Morgan and Nellie Abernathy, where we talk about a one-two punch uh, of how we got here. So the first punch would be those things that I just described, taxes and deregulation. 
The second punch was an assault on government and an assault on social welfare programs where race was used in a strategic way where we demonized poor people by basically, I'm going to use slightly bad word, niggerizing them. Basically demonizing them as being somehow deficient, somehow trying to con the system. We use imageries of, of welfare queens, imageries of deadbeat dads, and they were really hyper-racialized. Um, so that was one way. And then the other way was that government was deemed inefficient, inept. Government, anything that the government would do was deemed as uh, not being able to accomplish things. And, you know, in a historical context, that free market revolution was a backlash against a lot of the gains that came about from New Deal, as well as um, some of the civil rights gains. Um, so in, in response to uh, this egalitarian society um, that dissipated both the political and economic power at the top, we had this counter-revolution. And then let, let me just, I know I'm rambling on, but I'll say another no, key component. <laughs> another key component that was able to solidify this was race. Um, race is not an issue. We talk about race as if it's an issue. We talk about um, policies, then we say, well, let's think about race. Race is a pillar. It was, how do you get a population to go along with this status quo of growing inequality? Well, you solidify their horizontal positioning. You tell, you, you offer them, you say, however unequal we are in terms of a vertical positioning, however unequal you are in that ladder of vertical inequality, at least you're not them. At least you're not black. At least you're not an immigrant. At least you're not this other population. That is the political mechanism, which it's not just trivial. There are material and psychological benefits of not being black in America. When we have an economic downturn, there are material benefits associated with not being the first fired. Um, there are material benefits in a uh, in an economy of not being the first fired or last hired, and um, that is the compromise that's offered in exchange for this growing vertical inequality. Trump infamously said that trade wars are, quote, good and easy to win. Now, in the abstract, not necessarily pertaining to this situation, what does it take to win a trade war? To win a trade war, you have to be a large country. And you're basically manipulating the terms of trade in your favor. So you're basically trying to get the stuff you buy more cheaply relative to the stuff you sell. When we have two large countries, as we do with U.S. and China, there there could very well be no no winner. In fact, both players could be worse off. So you know, it's it's uh, a situation where the economics tells us that this is not you know this trade war is not going to end well for either party, uh, and there's probably a better way to do this. The argument that I've heard is from Trump himself, of course, is that because we import so much more from China than they import from us, it would be easier for the U.S. to inflict more damage on the Chinese economy in a trade war. Is that the case? I would argue no. I mean, on the face of it, the answer is obviously yes. The numbers are such that it's clear that we import more from them than they import from us. But we that doesn't take into account the huge volume of sales that our multinationals do inside China. 
which almost equals out the balance. And so they how exactly does that play out? So we have, say, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Um, we have Apple Corporation. We have Micron. We have Intel. Um, you know, we have a lot of companies, uh, Procter & Gamble, huge sales, uh, General Electric. Uh, these are all companies that are doing business in China. They are exporting some inputs to China and then producing inside China for sales to the Chinese economy. And China has, um, you know, there's some reports that they've been hassled a bit, um, but largely they've been untouched. So I think there's a lot of American assets and sales in China that are potentially at risk. I don't think China will do it. I think China has taken great pains to remain open for business it is trying to isolate this dispute with the United States from its relations with the rest of the world uh, and continue to be a place to host foreign investment from the rest of the world. Uh, and so far, that seems to be consistent with their behavior. So I think that he's only looking at one part of the overall relationship. I mean, in theory, right, you win a trade war eventually by being able to take the you know, take the retaliations and the back and forth and not be the first person to cry uncle. How do we see this potentially playing out? Is there a point at which we could see China crying uncle? Or does the fact that it's a one party system and authoritarians don't necessarily have to be afraid of being ousted because there's an economic downturn? I mean, does that just give them an advantage there? Well, yes, I think it does. Uh, we're, you know, we're heading into a presidential election in 2020. They're not. So I, I do think it does. I also think that for historical, um, and cultural reasons, it's, they're not going to be bullied by us. And so bullying was probably the worst tactic to take when you want people to change their behavior. Uh, and those people are people who are already sensitive to foreign encroachment. So, uh, I do think they have the advantage, even if we are able to inflict more pain on them than they are on us. I definitely think they'll take pain over capitulation. And it's important, I think, to step back and say, think about what we're saying. We're saying that the United States of America's foreign policy toward a sovereign country is to try to destroy their economy. Really? That's where we are? Uh, and I think that every other country in the world is looking at that and thinking, hmm, do I really want to start bilateral negotiations with the United States right now? Does it seem like at this point that we will reach an agreement with China before the 2020 election? It's a very, you know, difficult question to ask because you have two um, strong personalities involved, President Xi Jinping and President Donald Trump. I would guess not. And the reason I would say not is because there really has been very little progress on the underlying issues, the issues that would really have to be addressed for President Trump to claim success in any way that anyone would accept as legitimate. Um, I think he's been trying to paint this picture the way he wants the American public to see it. So he repeats often the statement that it's the Chinese who are paying for the tariffs, not to the Americans. But I think Americans day by day believe that less and less. They see the farmers suffering. Uh, we've seen study after study show that import prices are going up, uh, that the tariff revenues that are coming into the U.S. 
Treasury are being paid for by higher prices for U.S. companies and U.S. consumers. So I think that if he were to reach an agreement, it would be very carefully scrutinized and it would have to really address these underlying issues on which they've made no progress. That does not make me very hopeful for a successful outcome. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed, which can help take the coloring of your hair to the next level. For decades, women have only had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or spending the time and money on a salon. But now you can get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door for less than $25. Self-image is an important thing, so it's no surprise that many Madison Reed clients have commented how their new hair color has actually improved their lives. Madison Reed delivers gray-covering, game-changing color that you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon. Women love the results. Gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. What makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous, multi-tonal shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. And best of the left listeners, get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code LEFT. That's madison-reed, R-E-E-D, and use the promo code LEFT. We are now going to turn our attention to uh, one of the new forms of war. Well, it's it's new, but not so new on the economic uh, front. In 1992, U.S. political scientist Samuel P. Huntington delivered a lecture at the American Enterprise Institute of Right wing think tank based in Washington titled The Clash of Civilizations. His lecture, which was later published in article and book formats, argued that future wars would not be fought over ideology or nationalism, but civilizational values. He also argued that the rise of China presents the greatest threat to what he called Western civilization, which he suggested was superior to others. That is, Western civilization was superior to others. Um, According to Huntington, in order to stop China, the West would need to attack its economy and exert its dominant values. And 27 years later, it seems Donald Trump is borrowing from the same racist lines from Huntington's playbook in his war against China, the world's second largest economy and a growing global economic superpower. And Trump clearly wants to put the brakes on that. Um, indeed, uh, China it is predicted will surpass the U.S. economy in 2020. But with the tariff wars going on, we'll have to see what will actually happen. Uh, seven of the world's 10 largest economies will be in Asia in the next decade. Let's go to um, a clip now from CNN about the impact of the tariffs on people in the U.S., Despite friendly handshakes between Team Trump and the Chinese delegates, trade talks appear stalled. No deal on the horizon. Hello, everybody. And no sign of President Trump giving an inch on the 25% tariff he's launched on Chinese goods. I happen to think that tariffs for a country 
are very powerful. You know, we're the piggy bank that everybody steals from, including China. But American consumers could soon feel a greater impact if the tariffs expand to consumer products as threatened. China would be expected to pass on those expenses, jacking up prices on smartphones, computers, televisions, fitness trackers, and much more. The extra cost for the average American family of four is expected to be close to $800. What could drive it? Three quarters of the toys bought in the U.S. are made in China, including these hugely popular dolls. 93% of Chinese-made footwear, including some shoes for Nike, could be hit. So could clothing, Bluetooth headsets, and even drones. Trump's tariffs on China last year steered away from consumer goods and focused on industrial items such as solar panels, steel, and aluminum. Those costs were passed on by American companies. American consumers are already paying. They, they just don't really know. It's kind of a stealth tax, huh. but uh, it's going to become a very obvious tax uh, not, too, uh, yeah. not too far yeah. from now if this, if this continues. The major markets are already showing unease over the clash. In the next three years, if China and the U.S. continue warring over trade, economists say both countries could see their economies slow down and close to a million American jobs might be lost. Still, the president has long insisted China is cheating the U.S. by stealing intellectual property, manipulating currency, and most recently reneging on a framework for a deal. And he's convinced China will blink first, tweeting, Tariffs will make our country much stronger, not weaker. Just sit back and watch. Yeah, well, we are indeed watching. And so is Dr. Gerald Horn, who's the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books, including White Supremacy Confronted U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism Versus the Liberation of Southern Africa and From Rhodes to Mandela and Jazz and Justice, Racism and the Political Economy of Music. He's also the author of Facing the Rising Sun, African-Americans, Japan, and the Rise of Afro-Asian Solidarity. And Dr. Horn, as it turns out, a little known fact about him is that he lived in the region. He lived in Hong Kong um, from 1999 to 2000. Dr. Gerald Horn, welcome back. Well, thank you for inviting me. So, uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, um, you know, I know we're, we're focusing on the impact of the tariffs, particularly those on, on China. We won't even get into the ones on, on Mexico. We'll go more in depth on that, hopefully, uh, tomorrow on the lifestyle, really, of people in the United States and what it will cost uh, consumers. But tell us a bit about this backdrop, about the clash of civilizations, because this is about economics, but it's also about more than that, Dr. Horn. Well, you are correct. It's quite striking that a comment on precisely that point that is to say that China presents a so-called racial and a civilizational threat, was made by a black woman who was probably the highest-ranking black woman in the Trump regime. I'm speaking of Karan Skinner of the State Department. Interestingly enough, that comment received maximum attention in China, little attention on this side of the Pacific, I'm afraid to say. Mm. But it's fair to suggest that Mr. Trump's trade war that he ignited in May 2019 is a direct response to this perception that China is in the passing lane. It's a direct response 
to the uh, so-called Made in China 2025 initiative announced by President Xi Jinping some months ago, which projects China being the global leader in quantum computing, green energy, robotics, artificial intelligence. Recall that it was President Putin who said that whoever leads the race for artificial intelligence undoubtedly will lead the race for global hegemony. China also has pronounced the so-called Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which is a trillion-dollar package that involves building of railways, that will now take trains, as they do now, from the eastern coast of China all the way to Western Europe, and also connects African markets to the Chinese market as well. So surveying this landscape, Mr. Trump decided that the better part of wisdom would be to launch this trade war to try to stop China in its tracks, and certainly that's the way it's being perceived in Beijing. Neither Google nor any of the other companies we contacted about cyber attacks would agree to talk to us. And Chinese officials deny they've been involved in such practices. But by 2015, American businesses and government officials were increasingly alarmed. In negotiations with President Obama, she pledged that China would not engage in economic cyber hacking. I believe that we have made significant progress in enhancing understanding between our two nations. Obama also brokered a major trade agreement with allies, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP. It was supposed to put pressure on China to fix the growing economic problems between the two countries. But all of that would come unraveled with a new president in the White House. Trump quickly withdrew from the TPP agreement. And by the fall of 2018, with his own trade negotiations stymied, the conflict was widening. The administration took a tough turn, confronting China aggressively. Placing a new report tonight detailing just how big the threat China poses. It accused China of breaking the cyber agreement. Chinese intel officers charged with hacking U.S. businesses. And engaging in widespread technology theft. This latest indictment adds to the growing tension between the U.S. and China in the middle of this fierce trade war. Vice President Mike Pence. Now through the Made in China 2025 plan, the Communist Party has set its sights on controlling 90 percent of the world's most advanced industries, including robotics, biotechnology and artificial intelligence. Really an extraordinary speech attacking China on the domestic politics front, the trade front and the military front. Chinese security agencies have masterminded the wholesale theft of American technology. They don't want to wait 20 more years to catch up. They're just reaching into the cookie jar and taking whatever they want. And using that stolen technology, the Chinese Communist Party is turning plowshares into swords. That speech was the, not a hawkish speech. That speech was a declaration of economic war and potentially a real war. Former Assistant Secretary of State Susan Thornton. China was read by everybody all the way up to the top. Did the vice president issue any kind of evidence? As what? As a harbinger of, you know, something really, really uh, different and something that was really alarming for them. Why was it alarming for them? It was a very unnuanced, undiplomatic speech. It was kind of a 
bill of indictment. Both China and the United States need to make an effort to make sure that the bilateral relations do not get out of control. Our message to China's rulers is this. This president will not back down. That was the point of no return. And it's not being acknowledged enough. It was the most important speech of the whole Trump administration. Early on, the focus of the trade war had been on tariffs and reviving 20th century industries. But it had now become about far more, about who will dominate the cutting edge industries of the 21st century. So I headed to Silicon Valley, where the battle was being waged. The fear inside this White House is that China is using its vast financial resources to leap ahead technologically of the United States. The Trump administration was trying to restrict China's access to valuable technology developed by American companies. First up, though, this morning, the Trump White House uh, announcing a pivot. Using an existing law related to national emergencies to restrict Chinese investment in sensitive technologies. On Sand Hill Road, I met one of the most experienced high-tech bankers in the valley who was troubled by what he was seeing. He told me about a flood of calls he started receiving from Chinese investors about five years ago. He remembered one Chinese investor in particular. Silicon Valley Bank Chairman Emeritus Ken Wilcox. He'd been sent to invest in technology. Could I help? And I said, well, what kind of technology? And he, he had difficulty answering the question. And if I pushed him hard, clearly in the end, uh, it would be... Uh, artificial intelligence, semiconductors, maybe things having to do with automotive. The Chinese government's top priorities. It's Chinese government's top priorities, right. And and I said, well, how much do you have to invest? And he claimed that he had access to a billion dollars. A billion dollars. Yeah. And then I met a private equity firm that had uh, $15 billion dollars from some entity in the Chinese government. How much money? Fifteen billion. With a B. Yeah, and they told me that their only their only mandate was to invest in semiconductors. What did you think of that? I thought this is I don't know if this is good. I mean, you've been at the heart of Silicon Valley financing yeah. for thirty-five years. Yeah. What do you think is happening here? I think China is doing its absolute best to make itself self-sufficient from a technological point of view. They realize that in order to accomplish that, they either have got to uh, start pedaling faster on their own or they've got to buy a lot of technology. At Stanford University, I found investors and entrepreneurs grappling with China's high-tech ambitions. Gravacol Dragonomics analyst Dan Wong. Silicon Valley is very much at the heart of the trade war. Why do you say that? The U.S. needs to keep a technological advantage. Uh, and Silicon Valley uh, is generating a lot of the innovations that are powering uh, the U.S. in terms of all sorts of different technologies. Susan Thornton. Somebody from the business community said, you know, we're not in a trade war, we're in a economic war. And I think that's what we probably are really worried about. A lot of Chinese technology companies invest heavily in 5Gs. Now there are areas where they're actually you know, quite competitive in some areas where they even seem to be maybe having an, an edge. And you know what? Chinese companies are already working on 6Gs. Despite their worries about China, people here also depend on Chinese investments and were concerned that the Trump administration would go too far. 
Do you think the administration had good reason to clamp down on investments from China in Silicon Valley? I think so. But there's a difference between, yes, there's a problem, and the response being measured, appropriate, and grounded. Damon Mateo of Fulcrum Strategies. I think they, they may end up operating to our detriment broadly economically, but also without the ability to collaborate, it's going to be very difficult for the U.S. to keep up. James McGregor. Business used to be the ballast in the relationship because American companies made money, American Consumers got cheap goods, kept inflation down, um, China got know-how, capital, etc. The business relationship is now the major conflict because we're both going for all the technologies of the future. We're both racing for global leadership influence. So now business is, 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 is an irritant and it's the conflict. As I drove around the valley, I could see the challenge of this high-tech conflict. Chinese businesses are visibly present, tightly connected to the economy. And few people I met here thought the Trump administration's hard line on China would be good for anyone in the long run. The end game here is the decoupling of the American and Chinese economies. Which, by the way, is already underway, and it's going to continue. Ken Wilcox. I think there are people who think that uh, sealing ourselves off is is ultimately the best solution. To break China and the United States economies apart. Yeah. But that seems so sad because we could do so much for each other. If your goal was to stop China from advancing, you're not going to accomplish that anyway because they'll, they'll just innovate around you. Why would you want to stop anybody from making progress? I, I, I don't see that. What I think our goal should be Some people is to, would say because they could become more powerful in the world marketplace than, than the United States. The better goal is for us to spend time on becoming more powerful ourselves, I think. Is a recession coming? So I'm not a prognosticator. Um, I think <laughs> um, there are a lot of economists who say that there are a lot of tensions in the economy that could lead to a recession, but none of them are willing to put a timeline on it, and none of them feel like it's tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so we well, have time to prepare. Yeah, that's that's right. It it reminds me that the last time that we had a recession which of course it was so big we called it the great one the great mm -hmm. recession we were pretty caught off guard would you agree with that our team yeah i would i would absolutely and we sort of lost the narrative and then we lost the solutions right yeah you know i honestly the thing that i loved most about what you wrote was about the narrative um i think sometimes in policy circles we obsess about policy which is not a surprise, mm -hmm. um, but that policy is really an extension of the stories we tell ourselves. And yeah. we lost that fight before it began because we had told ourselves these terrible stories about what was leading up to that recession and thus what the solution should be. And you articulated that so extraordinarily well in what you wrote. Can you recap that a little bit for me? Yeah, for sure. Um, and I'd say like this draws on the work of Robert Schiller, um, who's been focusing on something he calls narrative economics and on the work of Anat Shankar Osario and Ian Haney Lopez and Demos on their race class narrative work. Um, but 
the, the narrative that we really had coming out of or coming into the Great Recession was really around individual responsibility or irresponsibility. And um, rather than really looking at the role that um, financial deregulation played, the role that predatory uh, practices in the financial sector really targeting certain communities for inappropriate, you know, explosive products um, played, uh, the narrative really focused on what individuals did, whether it was greedy um, homeowners who wanted to you know, get more home than they could really afford, right? That was one narrative. The other was these wunderkind kind of folks on Wall Street who were coming up with these exotic um, uh, structures for um, making money off of these collateralized debt obligations and so forth, all the exotic things. (laughs) But, um, But we didn't point at the systemic problems and we didn't point at the ways that folks were feeling it in their communities. And so it was their fault in their communities and our problem in the financial sector. And that's how we responded. So I do think that there was a great effort made around the Recovery Act, um, but it was, you know, for less than even the economists at the time were saying we needed in, in order to keep communities whole. But meanwhile, like at the point that the financial sector was doing better, we called it the end of the Great Recession, and communities who had been feeling the pain of foreclosures before the recession was called and feeling it still after um, were left out in the cold. Yeah, one of the things that you pointed out um, was that this was really the culmination of this trickle-down ideology, because the trickle-down story has us all as very atomized, right? It's our individual decisions that get us into trouble, and it's not about the systems that are at play. And this is obviously very convenient because it lets the powerful and those who run those systems off the hook. Um, and I, I remember having a conversation with somebody who's in a position of power. And let's be really clear, this narrative's this wasn't a Republican thing, right? This was uh, this was also a Democratic thing. The decision makers that were in the Obama White House also felt like these people made their own bed. And they are going to lie in it. <laughs> you That's know? right. Yeah. And, and it ends up being extraordinarily racialized, too, totally. because it was communities of color, black and Latino communities in particular, that were being targeted for these explosive products that were then like put together and cut up so that, you know, more money could be made off of them um, who were getting blamed for like not reading the fine print um, when products were being misrepresented to them. Yeah, totally. And it, it, you know, I think it's um, also when we have these kind of crises, one of the things that makes America great is we're supposed to pull together and help one another. And it doesn't really matter if you built your house in a floodplain or you happen to find yourself on a shore in a hurricane, we're going to be there for you. And that is not the approach that they took during this great recession. And it happened to be, of course, at that fundamentally benefited those in power. <laughs> I mean, conveniently. That's exactly right. Yeah. And it, you know, we came out of the Great Recession with greater income and wealth inequality than we went into, especially like along racial lines. But we could make different decisions, right? In the face of a, a recession, we could make decisions that close the wealth gap and close the income gap rather than exacerbate the problem. 
So let's dig into it a little bit. I mean, you, you, I think, point out that when we enter the next recession, no matter how intense it is, it's going to be an opportunity. It'll feel like a crisis, and it's going to no doubt expose a lot of the weaknesses that are already present in the economy, and it's going to make vulnerable people much more vulnerable. But we have an opportunity in it to do things differently. And you list a variety of policies that um, can help both address long-term structural problems as well as near-term pain points that people will have in a recession. Uh, could we, let's talk a little bit about what those policies are and some of the things that you, you identified and you thought were ripe for us to, to go at. Great. I mean, I think that one of the main things that I really wanted to convey in my paper is that these policies are things that people are already organizing around and, and building. And so we actually have some of the infrastructure we need in place. Um, so child care for all is one, right? Like in order for us to be able to put people to work quickly, particularly in the most impacted communities, we have to make sure that um, they are able to have care for their children and that those who are working in child care are making enough, right, that they can thrive as well. Um, you know, there are some rules of the game that uh, are exacerbating <laughs> the threat of a recession. So the sort of lack of regulation on corporations, um, our tax structure, um, that could be addressed and could actually help not just um, in the short term generate revenue, for instance, in the case of the tax structure, but actually in the long term help rein in the inequality that we're seeing, right? Um, there's, uh, you know, obviously work around the Green New Deal and other kinds of both climate uh, mitigation um, uh green infrastructure and other infrastructure work that folks are, you know, campaigning hard around. Those are places where we could invest during a recession, create both jobs and the infrastructure that we need in order to be able to come out of the recession ready to thrive as a community of communities, right? Our country. Um, you know, one that we often... <laughs> don't think of as a long-term goal, but we do think of during moments of crisis is this idea of a full employment economy. There's no reason that as a, a nation where everybody has the opportunity to thrive and a nation with such abundance that we really all could be thriving right now, that we don't commit to a full employment economy. And that's both like monetary policy from the Federal Reserve, but also our fiscal policy and the kinds of investments that we're making um, as a country together. Um, you know, those are some of the things. Yeah, I thought those were really great. And, you know, I, I think every one of those touches on an immediate impact in your life and then your ability to be full participants in the economy again. Because one of the things that ends up happening in these recessions, of course, is that many people lose their jobs 
or their ability to be full participants. And then you get these downward cyclical things where people aren't able to then spend in their communities. They're not able to Mm -hmm. uh, make investments in themselves, their children, their lives. And that is very dangerous. And it really is part of what exacerbated the long recovery we've been having from the last recession. We didn't do enough. And we just have to admit that. And I think that's exactly right. And so much of our policy actually like outside of the monetary, I mean, yeah, outside of the monetary policy actually was putting the brakes on what should have been a recovery, right? Because instead of like doing what the government alone is able to do, which is pour money into the economy at that time, um, well, the government and large corporations, right, pour money into the economy they were pulling back in this austerity move. And so cutting public sector employment, um, not supporting local and, and state um, states to keep the level of services, the level of employment and expand in that moment of crisis. Yeah, one of the things about that trickle-down frame is it yeah. also has this scarcity mentality and this austerity approach. And we know study over study, comparing countries to countries or states to states, those that pursued this austerity model or this trickle-down approach ended up recovering more slowly over a longer period of time and more people were harmed. And I think if there's any message for policymakers, it's don't repeat that mistake. We learned that. That's exactly right. Right, don't you think? Yeah. We've just heard clips today, starting with the Young Turks, highlighting Elizabeth Warren sounding the alarm on the fundamental problems of our economy. The takeaway followed the public and private messages being sent by the Trump administration. Thinking Cap discussed the racialization of our economy and how race has been used to repeal the New Deal and fracture worker solidarity. Sojourner Truth Radio discussed the clash of civilizations at the heart of the trade war with China. 538 explained trade wars in general and how that applies to the U.S. and China. Frontline explained the so-called China model and America's attempt to stop China in its tracks. And finally, we just heard Pitchfork Economics discussing what progressives need to be planning for when the recession inevitably hits. Members this week will hear additional clips about the factor of inequality that is making the U.S. economy quite precarious, more on the idea of decoupling the Chinese and American economies, as well as some of the Democratic candidates' stances on trade policy. Plus, more voicemails from members, which are always fun. To hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, this is Chris Carter in San Diego, California. I was just listening to the podcast on uh, voting machines and uh, voter security and paper ballots versus uh, electronic ballot machines, that kind of thing. And um, I just wanted to say that uh, I've, I've been voting by mail for years, and it's always been a paper ballot, and I'm not real sure why more people don't just simply get on the vote by mail roles and do it that way. Thanks. 
Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling in episode 1302, chapter 11, Nancy from San Francisco, independent media supporting. Nancy, you're my hero. And it was <laughs> so interesting after listening to your clip and then V's clip and then pausing so that I follow with the activism. The news came on, the regular radio news, and I listened for 10 minutes on Trump and the hurricane and how he had the path drawn in. And this is the news that we're listening to. Well, this is the news that most people are listening to. And then I got up this morning and I turned on the TV as I'm having my cup of coffee. And again, they're talking about Trump and Noah Weather and the hurricane path and how Trump is insistent and dot, dot, dot. Like, this is crazy. So, Nancy, you're right. You're my hero. And thanks for supporting independent media. And, um, Jay, I'm going to have to revisit my membership and increase it. <laughs> so those are my thoughts. Stay awesome, people. Jay, hi, this is Jeff from Charlotte, North Carolina, calling you. Calling you in response to a lot of the traction we've been hearing about Medicare for All. And specifically, I want to respond to Scott's uh, situation that's going on. Scott from Tennessee, Scott Smith. He mentioned that he has a condition where insurance will not reimburse for his medication. And also he has a lot of things going on where a lot of his payments and have been disputed with his insurance company and my big warning for a lot of people is that if you want to move over to a medicare for all model of health care there's going to be a lot more of this i know something needs to be done but i don't think medicare for all is the answer medicare does not pay for a lot of services that you think you may be receiving I'm speaking from experience. I ran a practice, a uh, medical practice for close to 17 years. And one of our worst payers was Medicare. And one of the groups of people who had the most open balances with a lot of out of pocket expenses being owed were our Medicare patients. And the other part is funding for Medicare for all is that currently there's a premium that Medicare subscribers pay for. And if you're going to insure a larger group, that payment may increase. So I'm not saying that I'm against national health care, but Medicare for all model, let's not just jump right into that. Why don't we explore more resources? Thank you. And I enjoy your show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So excellent voicemails today. I have uh, responses to all of them. First of all, uh, from Chris, who is in California, about voting by mail, I, I, I certainly agree that anyone who is able to vote by mail should. I, there are like just the tiniest handful of arguments against voting for mail as a policy. I, and I'm always surprised about that because everyone who lives in Oregon 
loves voting by mail, swears by it, and wishes everyone else would do the same. So arguing against voting by mail, it just sort of reminds me of arguing against like Canadian healthcare. Like, no, 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 yo, you wouldn't want to do that. You don't know about the downsides. I don't know. Ask a Canadian. They seem pretty, uh, pretty excited by it. Again, ask Oregonians. They're pretty excited about their vote by mail system. I, I guess I haven't checked in a little while. I can't remember if Oregon is still the only state that has statewide vote by mail as the status quo. But yeah, that, that has sounded like a good idea to me for a long time. Of course, as was discussed in the episode, there need to be exceptions for persons with disabilities. And, and so I, I think there does still need to be polling places. And I, to be honest, I, and I should have looked this up. I don't even know if Oregon has polling places in addition to vote by mail. I would really imagine that they do, but someone will have to fact check me on that. But anyway, so Chris is in California and I, I grew up in California. I don't live there anymore. And I think that in California, you can just say, I prefer to be an absentee voter all the time and they don't really mind. So they'll send you an absentee ballot for every election. And so I'm guessing that's what Chris is doing. But not every state is like that. A lot of states really put a lot of hurdles in place to allowing people to vote absentee. So signing up to to send in your paper ballots isn't as easy as it should be. So if if we can't get states to uh, pass statewide vote by mail systems, then we at least need to break down those barriers to voting absentee for those who would prefer to vote uh, with a paper ballot. I mean, but really, you know, as we discussed, we need nationwide standards that, you know, do the best possible job of creating standards for voting on paper. Voting by mail should absolutely be an option for anyone at any time for any reason. And as I said, I'm completely open to the Oregon model of having vote by mail be the status quo because their voter participation rate is out of this world in the U.S. where the number of or the percentage of eligible voters who actually participate in elections is embarrassingly low. Oregon is showing results in the like 70% range. And I think the article that I just uh, pulled those numbers from, I think that's for the midterms. So that's for off years, not voting for president, they still got 70% return on those ballots. So whatever few arguments there are about, oh, you know, vote by mail allows for more fraud and, you know, all of that, you know, because someone theoretically could forge your name or take their parents' uh, ballot who, and they had just passed away, but they could fill in a second ballot and send it in. I mean, I get it, but I feel like any amount of fraud or forgery that could happen would be swamped by the enormous amount of voter participation. That, that's my instinct. Experts may disagree. Uh, secondly, to, in response to Alan, Nancy is also my hero. I, I, I should have mentioned that in the previous episode. Alan beat me to it, embarrassed me in, in the process. So I just want to pile on. To thank Nancy, she left a very, very nice voicemail talking about how much she uh, values and supports independent media. And, you know, if as Alan was saying, if she inspires more people to support, then 
all the more reason uh, that uh, she deserves her heroic status. And then lastly, in response to Jeff, in response to his thoughts on Medicare for All and how Medicare isn't necessarily the best system, and so if we expand it to everyone, that won't necessarily solve all of our problems, I found this voicemail uh, really frustrating, not because of what Jeff said, but because of what it means about how we are not yet being clear enough on the message of Medicare for All. Because when this conversation was getting started, a lot of people were uh, using the term improved Medicare for All. And I, I assume they are still using it. We need to continue to use it to get the message through that when we say Medicare for All, we do not mean Medicare as it currently is, the regular status quo that everyone's been familiar with for decades. We mean we want to improve Medicare in a whole variety of ways. We want it to cover more things and expand it to everyone. So Jeff's concerns about his experience with the current iteration of Medicare for All doesn't concern me in the least. If anything concerns me, it would be that we wouldn't be able to make the types of improvements that we want to make in the legislation. But that's another discussion. The idea that anyone is proposing that we not make improvements and expand it to everyone should be set aside entirely because no one is arguing for that. Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, everyone who has signed on to any version of a Medicare for All bill, they all want to improve Medicare in the process of expanding it to everyone. So uh, Jeff can rest easy and get on board supporting a Medicare for All proposal. So thanks to everyone for all of those calls. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. One quick reminder before I go that Babbel is the language learning app supporting today's episode. It is designed to get you speaking a new language quickly and with confidence. Babbel's interactive lessons are created by over 100 language experts and last only 10 to 15 minutes. And here are the easy steps to get you started speaking a new language with confidence. Go to babbel.com or download the app, select the language of your choice, and try it for absolutely free. That's Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com. Babbel, speak a new language with confidence. And now, that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.